This is Dialogue with Drake and Naboo. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Naboo. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. Over the last number of years, there has been a housing crisis brewing on PEI. What does this mean? Essentially that it's exceptionally challenging to find housing to purchase or rent, and prices have increased drastically. This particularly impacts low- and middle-income islanders in securing a home. According to the latest Canada Mortgage and Housing Commission data, the vacancy rate was 2.6% in 2020. However, in the last three years, it's been as low as 0.2%. So zero, really. Additionally, the average rent for an apartment on PEI was $916, which was a 3.8% increase year over year. Today, we will be speaking with someone who works on the ground with tenants and has a great idea of the state of housing here in Prince Edward Island. He is the tenant coordinator for the Prince Edward Island Fight for Affordable Housing and Cooper Institute, lover of blueberry cream soda, Connor Kelly. Well, Connor, thanks again for joining us today. Our first question for you is an important one. How are you? Well, I'm doing okay. Very busy and tired, but I think most people are. Yes, most certainly. And um, it's been a busy last, I would say, couple of months and perhaps over a year now um, in your role as the tenant coordinator with the PEI Fight for Affordable Housing Organization. Of course, the, the housing crisis, I'm sure, is keeping you busy. Can you tell us a little bit about the mandate of this organization and how your role fits into that? Uh, yeah, so um, my position is with Fight for Affordable Housing and the Cooper Institute. Um, so they kind of have a similar mandate of uh, generally social change from bottom up. Uh, so like specifically your fight for housing, that'd be changing the housing policy and just the conditions of housing on PEI through um, like tenants uh, coming together in a way that would ca- build change in housing. Um, and then my position as tenant network coordinator is basically I work with tenants and reach out to tenants and help them organize themselves similar to like how a labor organizer would help organize workers in a workplace. Um, it's kind of drifted away from that a bit because it's just too many f- fires to put out with evictions and rent increases. Um, but that would be the goal of my position and like the goal of the like project that I'm funded with. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be talking about evictions and uh, appeals in a little bit. Uh, but before that, we wanted to chat about the state of housing itself, the purpose of this episode is to look at this. And you know, you are someone who's uniquely qualified in PEI to talk about uh, the key areas in housing on PEI. So first and foremost, how would you describe the state of housing on PEI? Um, am I allowed to swear or not? Or... Yeah, because when it's fucked um, really bad. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, like I hear, I've been told a few times that I have a unique perspective, but really anybody that's facing an eviction or increase knows exactly what it's like. Um, It's basically any day you can get a piece of paper on your door that just completely takes your home away from you. Um, And most of the time, it's not really for a good reason. Um, It's happening more and more often, especially to uh, 
anybody who's been stable for a long time. So if you've been living up in a place for over 10 years, you're more and more of a target. Um, and then it just really doesn't seem to have an end in sight of like, it'll eventually reach an end because inevitably it can't really sustain itself past a certain point. Um, yeah, just it's really bad. I think you put it best when you said it's fucked. Very clear. Uh, but let's jump into the eviction side of things because um, from speaking with you and as well uh, looking at some of your interviews, this is taking up a big portion of your role uh, as a tenant coordinator. Now, uh, just this past week, there was a really great uh, first-person article with CBC PEI by journalist Chelsea Perry that was titled, It's Desperation, How This Woman is Facing Homelessness Thanks to PEI's Housing Crisis. Now, the article showcases a Joy Ald who is facing renovation in 60 days because her building is being torn down. In your role as the tenant coordinator with uh, PEI Fight for Affordable Housing and the Cooper Institute, is this a standalone case or is this a common piece in the PEI housing crisis puzzle? Uh, specifically demolitions, I've come across them before and they aren't as common as other evictions, but like in the past month, I've worked with like 20 different apartments facing uh, an unjustified rent increase. There's um. 12 facing renovation and another 16 that are scared of getting a renovation by the same landlord. Um, one person getting evicted or two people in one apartment. It's easy to go by unit than people because otherwise it's just hard to keep track of everyone. But one apartment that's getting evicted for personal use, which is really trying to do a rent increase, but they were denied that before. So they're trying to get around it. Um, and then another person getting evicted because they were told the wrong things about the rental agreement and they were told they were able to smoke and then they're getting evicted for smoking. Um, and then one person who's just trying to get repairs for the landlord and their landlords, the provincial government who hasn't repaired their uh, ceiling or floor for water damage in several years. Um, so yeah, like this stuff's happening all the time. Like this is just the last month or so. Uh, I think in total, I've worked with like 186 people since January. And that's like maybe a small chunk of what's going on island wide. Wow, that's, um, I mean, numbers like that, it's, it's heartbreaking because each of those individual cases, I'm sure, are unique and just uh, multiple layers and, and challenging in and of themselves. Wow. Um, now, in, in situations like this, uh, what type of government support exists for people who are facing uh, eviction? Um, not a ton. Like, really, the only one is the provincial housing navigator who can help if you have complex needs that prevent you from finding new housing on your own, which isn't like if you have enough time or not, it's if you have a disability or a condition or are fleeing domestic violence or something like that, that needs somebody else to step in and help you find housing really fast. Um, so they help, provincial housing navigator helps with finding people places to live. Um, there's really nobody to help with the rental hearing process or fighting an eviction except for myself. Um, and then besides that, it's a lot of, 
like waiting lists for different forms of government housing, um, which are all like means tested to the point of not being very useful. So if you're not like abominably poor or like in very, very, like the most dire straits, then you really don't have any support. And you're kind of just left to like figure out how to do stuff on your own. And, you know, in your role as the tenant coordinator, you know, you're dealing with this on a day-to-day basis and, and really having, as Sweta mentioned, that kind of firsthand account of what the needs are on the ground of folks such as Joy who are facing eviction. What types of policies have you been advocating for to address things such as evictions? Um, because, as you mentioned, the, the supports right now are a little bit lacking. So what are some solutions there? Um. Like as part of my like attempt to approach my position, I try not to focus too hard on advocacy. I've definitely like recommended policies or pushed for policies, um, but I don't think any specific policy will really um, solve the problem caused by evictions. It's not until you get to like the very root of the issue, which is that like landlords are able to control other people's housing. Um, it's not until you start moving housing away from being able to be controlled by private interests that you'll end evictions or really solve the problem. Um, but as ways to try to lighten the problem or like soften its edges, um, some of the policies I've, and with the pipe pipe for housing, I push for um, like just changing when the time frame for an eviction starts. So if you have 60 days to move out for demolition or rent eviction or anything like that, um, it should take effect after the final decision has been made. If you go through the rental hearing process or the IRAC appeal process, because right now, if you get a notice on your door, the timer starts the moment you get that notice. So you have a decision of you either fight the eviction or the rent increase or whatever it is that's been put on your door, or you try to find a new place to live, or you try to find a way to accommodate the higher rent. Um, so changing that to an eviction starts after the decision's made, like it gives people the chance to at least try to defend themselves. Um, other policies would be just like an end to rent evictions, like renovation shouldn't in any way take away tenancy from a place. Cause like if somebody's acting in good faith, like they're going to find a way to accommodate someone during renovations, like you can have a kitchen that's all torn apart you can still live in that place for a while. You just have to find a different accommodation for food. Um, so I think what fiber for housing has been pushing is just like tenancy shouldn't end at all during renovations. The landlord should have a plan to accommodate a tenant during renovations. And then uh, during renovations, the tenant like moves to a different vacant unit or this the time the scheduling of the renovations matches what will work for the tenant something like that uh so eviction just isn't a, a possibility with renovations um then another one would be like there's a bunch um another one would be uh sort of like a similar to workers compensation board creating um much more accessible legal aid for tenants because like nobody getting evicted or getting a rent increase can afford a lawyer. Um, and I am not a lawyer in any way. So I'm whatever support I can give in the rental hearing process is very 
limited because I'm just a lay person. Uh, so if people had access to proper legal counsel, um, then they would have much better chances of dealing with bad faith behavior from landlords, whether that's rent increases or evictions or anything like that. Um, yeah, and then the biggest one for me is uh, just giving tenants the right to organize and collectively bargain, similar to like workers' right to organize and collectively bargain in their workplace. Um, because that's where you're going to really get any change in uh, the housing crisis is when like the power imbalance between landlord and tenant gets flattened out. Um, otherwise, it's going to be a lot of patchwork amendments and changes that will just like plug a few of the holes, but the ship will still be sinking. And it's not until you give people the protections required to like, build their own boat um, or fix what's going on themselves that you're ever going to really find, even take a step towards a proper solution. Um, so that would be most of the, oh, the only one, the one other policy would be just copying what the Ontario Residential Tenancies Act has. I think it's section 14. Basically, landlords can't deny people pets because um, I've been seeing that a lot. Like if you get evicted, like you are not going to be able to keep your pet. Um, and in other provinces, like that's just not a problem. So there's no reason it shouldn't, like having pets shouldn't have an equal protection in the PEI, Residential Tenancy Act. So that's another policy that we've been pushing for. Yeah, and it's interesting you bring up that last one. Um, that came as a shock to me when I moved to Ontario because people were like, what do you mean? Like, people can't move somewhere because of their pets. And I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Like, <laughs> it happens all the time. People can't move somewhere because of their pets. Like, and I mean, going back to, to Chelsea's great article, like, that was a big concern for Joy when she was being, you know, uh, given her notice for a renovation was that, where do I go with, with my pet? Because that's a, a huge part of my life. So uh, some great points you bring up. And just to wrap up this focus on evictions, um, you know, obviously, it, it's just, I think, one piece of many when it comes to to the housing crisis but what role do you feel it kind of plays in the bigger picture because uh, we're seeing it more and more often and and it's it's been a big piece of what you've been working on so how do you think it fits into kind of the greater housing crisis uh, well just the ability to evict i think really gets to the core of why there is a housing crisis which is that um like people are controlling other people's homes uh, and because housing has been turned into or has been allowed to become a investment and like a speculative market rather than just a basic necessity like healthcare or water um, that the eviction is just where that becomes very clear that like it doesn't really matter how long you've lived in your home um, or how well we've taken care of it like somebody who just happens to have had through some kind of circumstance and very rarely through any kind of real effort on their part just had the capital to buy up property and then have control over who gets to live there um, so 
it's very much like it's the threat that hangs over everybody's head who rents of I don't want to cause a bust because then I'll get evicted. Um, or basically it's if you don't allow people to keep profiting off of your inability to afford property, then um, you're going to lose access to a roof over your head. Um, so it's really just an eviction is just very much reinforcing that like the average person who rents just has no control over their home and some other person who doesn't like it's just a very inhuman thing I would say to evict someone um, because it requires you to be controlling somebody else's home from the start and just that relationship is a very dehumanizing one because it requires considering yourself on some level better than somebody else to the point that you're fine just making somebody else pay for a property that you have a mortgage on to the point that you're not even um, doing anything that like, not to say that deserve or not deserve comes into the question of property, but somebody else is paying for your mortgage and you also can kick them out whenever you want. Like it's just, it's not a fair relationship and just isn't something that should exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you raise a very good point around the vulnerability of tenants themselves and the imbalance of power that exists between landlord and tenants and, you know, evictions, as you said, are very, very dehumanizing. Uh, but this isn't the only piece of the puzzle. So we'll move on now to the next topic for today, uh, which is looking at short-term rentals. Um, as dialogue listeners will know, we had a short-term rental panel um, on episode 21 uh, with Jonathan Green and Robin Graham and Nathan Hood. Um, and this was in mid-March of this year. Uh, on May 21st, though, Connor, you presented uh, a petition to Mayor Philip Brown at the Charlottetown City Hall with over 900 signatures calling for the city of Charlottetown to regulate short-term rentals, specifically a bylaw which would allow short-term rentals to only be operated from a principal residence. What kind of feedback did you receive from the community and city council on this petition? Uh, well, there are two major things I took away from the work on that petition. Um, the first was just the mayor and city council. Like we didn't really, like the mayor said a few times, 900 signatures, this is a lot. Um, it sounded a lot more like he was saying it to say it, but I do think it had some, like it was a bit of a push. Uh, the problem with this whole structure of a petition is that it's a one and done thing. And unless you have, and we didn't really have a plan at the time of sending the petition in of how to maintain pressure. Um, like by circumstance, it seems that pressure just been kept on city council because like short-term rental operators keep trying to do stuff behind the scenes and it just backfires when it's made public. So it just looks like more and more of a mess to not do what everybody in the petition was asking for. And then the other feedback that we got a lot from the community when we were doing it was people um, like thanking us for doing it and saying it was good work and stuff like that, which uh, to me really reinforced the need to um, approach these issues as something that isn't just like, I'm really not a fan of the idea of 
like activists or activism because it's a very like it separates people from the issues in their community as if like only this group of people who are activists should be the one or the ones who deal with this stuff um so getting thanked a lot by people who are living in the city and are being affected by this um really threw me off because it's like you shouldn't be thanking if you're signing the petition like you're contributing to solving this problem in your own community so you shouldn't feel as if you have to thank somebody mm -hmm. who just is like printing off the paper um so it just really reinforced the need to do like more organizing work around housing and housing issues that really get people used to the fact of if there's an issue like they're going to be the ones them and their neighbors and whoever else uh is connected in a material way to whatever the issue at hand is um like it's going to be them that solves the problem through the power that they have together rather than someone that's going to come in and be like myself who's like i'm a professional activist i'll take your signature on a petition and i'll solve the problem somehow because that's just not how it works mm -hmm. um, it's not how it should work um, so overall the petition was i think good and i think it helped but in the future i think that those kinds of pushes should be um following much more a process of organizing rather than here's a petition we'll hand it off and then wait and see what happens mm -hmm. yeah the, the petition certainly was you know a piece of this whole short-term housing puzzle but we saw, especially after the previous uh, public meeting that was held at the Confederation Center, there were a number of community groups that were offering feedback to the city as to short-term regulations. Um, I know, you know, even if you go on social media, there were a number of people who are sharing templates or helping folks really organize and offer feedback. Um, and as a result of that, we have seen that the recommended regulation has shifted from scenario four which permitted uh, short-term rentals in any principal residence, including apartments with allowance for commercial uh, short-term rentals in zones that would permit a hotel to the more restrictive scenario one, which is permitting short-term rentals um, in any principal residence except apartments with no allowance for commercial short-term rentals. Um, and you know, this uh, new scenario is going to be talked about at the next public meeting on November 9th, uh, the tickets for which are still available online at the Confederation Center box office. Now, how do these two scenarios compare and what would be the impact of going with scenario one as compared to scenario four? Yeah, well, the scenarios compare in scenario four is similar to the kind of supports available to people facing housing issues it's a sort of means tested or like middle ground um approach that is going to have a lot of loopholes like it's very difficult to enforce something that allows for commercial operation of sdrs in some way way shape or form as opposed to something that's very to the point you can only have it in an owner occupied residence um, and then because enforcement gets harder, it costs more money to try to enforce that specific scenario or policy that comes out of that scenario. Uh, and then it just becomes a big mess as opposed to um, the scenario one approach, which is owner occupied only. So it's very cut and dry of, do you live in the building? If not, 
you're breaking the policy or the bylaw. Um, and that becomes much easier to enforce because the requirements are very straightforward. Um, so I think it's a much stronger uh, approach to take to the short-term rental bylaw. And it's also the one that already exists. It's just that it's not that bylaw hasn't been getting enforced at all. Um, so it's really more the city staffer basically getting across to council that this is what the bylaws already were and the council's realized that and now it's they're basically going to just set in stone that their already existing bylaws are going to be properly enforced now um, through taking up scenario one. Um, yeah, so the biggest difference I would say is scenario one is very straightforward. Scenario four is very overly complicated and involves like zoning exceptions and things and which would allow commercial operation in like the downtown core by all the hotels, which is where it's already densest. So it doesn't really solve the problem and is a mess to enforce. Where I, why, while um, scenario one's way easier to enforce because it's cut and dry. You have to live in the place as your primary residence to be able to operate an SDR. That's a really great overview. So sticking to the topic of short-term rentals, something very interesting happened within this past week, which I think took a lot of people in the housing realm by surprise. So in 2019, uh, there was the Act to Amend the Tourism Industry Act. Uh, now what this proposed to do was require all tourist operators, including short-term rental operators, to be compliant with the existing bylaws and regulations on PEI. Now this was only proclaimed as of this week and will come into effect on November 6th. So very surprising, very cool. Can you tell us about these amendments and the specific changes therein? Yeah, I don't know them like inside and out, but I do know it. the biggest part of it seems to be um, the requirement for, I think like providing information to the province about how the SDR is operating. Um, so like how much income or all your receipts of people renting it out for seven years or something like that. Um, and then also all of that information will be recorded and all that information would then be provided to municipalities by the province or like the province is able to do that. Um, which going back to what I was saying about enforcement, like it makes it way easier for municipalities to enforce their bylaws because the province who, which has more resources will be tracking all the information and then providing it. Um, because I know in the, like just the idea of how to keep track of um, an SDR is very hard unless you have like the data scraping stuff that was used for the short-term rental reports. But if the province is already doing it and it's if it's required by the act to do it, um, it's, it's way easier. So I think it very much helps out whatever short-term rental uh, regulation is going to come out of the city of Charlottetown or any other municipality. Yes, and that was actually kind of the follow-up question to that was, now that this bill has been proclaimed, how do you feel this will impact both um, information gathering, 
making uh, evidence-informed decisions, as well as any of the municipalities' efforts to regulate. How do you feel that will fit in to their efforts? Uh, I think it can go two ways. One is that like all the information becomes very much available and it very clearly proves the effects of SDRs in like Summerside or Charlottetown or some of the dense or Rustico even, like the places that are very much getting overtaken by tourism and unregulated tourism industries. Uh, and the second might be that like, just because that information has to be provided, it's a very strong deterrent and then they just don't get a ton of information, but there's all of a sudden a lot less people trying to get into short-term rentals because all of a sudden now they are being regulated and watched, um, which they seem very unhappy at the idea of because then they have, like everybody will know how much money they're making off of hoarding property and using it as hotels. Uh, so yeah, I think it can go either of those two ways or maybe some mix of both where it prevents too many people from jumping into SDRs um, because it's a way more transparent industry now that the amendments have been proclaimed and then like enforcement's going to be much more clearly required because like the information's all right in the open. Yeah, and, and you know, that's a very good summary of uh, what we were talking about, we would expect to see as a result of this bill. So um, it's really exciting and we can't wait to see what comes out of it. Uh, but you know, this is something that's already happened and we wanted to talk also about the fall sitting of the legislature. You know, it's underway now and we've seen housing prioritized as a topic of discussion time and time again over the last few weeks. Um, on October 19th, MLA Hannah Bell asked for bold, decisive action on the PEI housing crisis. On October 22nd, the Minister of Social Development and Housing, Brad Trivers, stated that we live in a free market economy and the market dictates the housing prices of the day, not the government. What do you think is the role that govern government plays or should play in the housing market? Yeah, I would say, like it's very important, especially when any conversation of the free market comes up. Uh, I know there's an author, Ursula Le Guin, who has a really good quote about it, um, that like, we live in capitalism and it seems like an inescapable power to us right now, which is what it seems to be to Minister Trivers. But like, it wasn't really that long ago that like the divine right of kings was like the inescapable power in the world. Um, so saying that government can't interfere in the free market, it's forgetting that the free market, like people made it and people operate it um, the same way, like the government's operated by people. Um, so any government, I, I think, shouldn't um, carry on the pretense that a like a free market is some higher power that's beyond control that should for some moral reason be beyond control because even the name free market is a very deceptive one because like nothing's free in a market and it's important to remember that the profits coming from a like strong economy is or like they're coming from somewhere like it's somebody is creating that value and it's being like funneled up to a very small select group of people um, with none of that value going back to the people who are creating it. Um, 
and really like in that way the free market's much more of a toy that a bunch of rich people play with it's kind of like a game of minecraft or something um so you get all these very rich people who are only really rich because they've been very lucky or very conveniently like born to a convenient parents or in a convenient place or at a convenient time like all of these things out of their control or the major contributors to them being wealthy while like millions of people uh were inconveniently born as either poor or just like an average person um so to for a government to not like intercede on behalf of the millions of people who are the ones that are creating all the value for the sake of all these people with like super yachts that are basically playing with playing with the world really um because they want to see lines go up and feel like they're winning um i think it's very it really misses the point of just what a government is to say that you shouldn't interfere with that and yeah a government should not worry about the free market it's just a toy it's made up um it runs mostly off of like the vibes of rich people i've never heard it phrased like that like you know nothing is free in a market so you can't really talk about the free market but but that's a very good point uh but talking about you know and we've touched on this a little bit before in this interview um the residential tenancy act um, as folks know, this was due to be tabled this fall sitting and might be coming up in the next few weeks as long as internal policy review processes are done. So, Connor, what would you like to see in this act? Uh, I'd like to see lots of things that probably won't make it into it. Um, I think the biggest ones would be, like, I'd really like to see tenants having the right to organize and collectively bargain um, to improve the conditions of their homes. Um, I'd like to see most of the stuff that I mentioned before, like protections against, like you can't ban pets from apartments, um, evictions, eviction timelines start at the end of the like legal process of determining if it's justified or not, uh, legal aid clinics being made available to tenants to help with disputes with their landlords. And even in order to make it more likely to get into the act to help landlords deal with their help have the same council available to tenants have a similar council available to landlords um yeah, i can end uh rent evictions um i'd really like to see just a general moratorium on evictions but i think focusing more on the rent evictions the more likely to get in um, yeah basically more any policy that focuses on the intent of tenancy law which is to protect the rights of tenants against the interests of landlords because that's the reason that even the rental of residential property act exists mm -hmm. um so more policy that follows that intent and spirit of acknowledging the power imbalance and taking strong steps towards curbing that imbalance or flattening it yeah and and this is like a common theme that I think we've been seeing throughout this interview as well is that constant power imbalance between tenants and landlords and how there isn't really a lot of legislation or a lot of bodies that are set up to be able to protect tenants because, you know, on one hand for landlords, the property is an investment, whereas here 
you know, for a lot of people, that's a home. Uh, so hopefully the Residential Tenancy Act comes up this fall and we get to see some interesting pieces presented in there. Um, we do have one last question for you around the fall setting itself, um, and it's about the capital budget. So this was tabled in the legislature last week uh, and included $60 million to be invested into social housing and $35 million into building 100 affordable housing units over five years. Are these investments adequate, according to you? And if not, what else would you have liked to see? Uh, I mean, I haven't looked too deeply at the capital budget, but going back to the whole like a government that's not willing to interfere with the free market. Um, I think that kind of government, I'm never going to be satisfied of how it invests its capital into solving housing issues because um, it's not going to upset the free market with that budget. It's always going to give money to developers or in some roundabout way to landlords. Um, I know the big things I'd like to see is the biggest thing I'd like to see is a publicly owned development company, like using the capital to create something like that. So they don't, the government no longer has to um, give out so much money to developers because the developers require, are required to make a profit um, because they're private companies and that's what they have to do. But with a public um, development company, if they invested into something like that, they'd be able to build stuff at cost um, and then maintain it without the need for jacking up the rents past affordable amounts. Um, and I would also like to see more, more money go into actually maintaining the currently existing public housing. Because um, from what I've seen from working with tenants who live in public housing, it's, just, it's not maintained well. Um, I think there's a big focus on building new things rather than converting what exists and maintaining what exists. Um, so while there's definitely going to be a need for more units, I think taking more and more housing out of the private market and into like public trust would be the kind of direction I want to see their money going towards. Like it's way cheaper to, if a landlord's selling a building, um, like just the government buys that building rather than throw money at building a new thing that's going to not really be affordable, only be affordable for 10 years. Because um, you can build a massive building for like, I think earlier in the summer, there was a building built for 13 million, something like that. But you can buy an equally large building where as many units to protect as many people's housing for like 4 million. Um, so this is an approach that focuses much more on just taking the market out of housing would be where I'd want the capital budget to go. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much for that. And the next set of questions, we're going to be focusing on some of those more longer term visions as, as you were talking about in this last set of questions. As folks and as listeners know, uh, there is a strategic vision on Prince Edward Island for housing, which is the PEI Housing Action Plan 
2018 to 2023. This was initially released in July of 2018, and it looks at a, a target of delivering 1,200 affordable units through partnerships, subsidies, construction, and more. So our first question on this for you, Connor, is what is PEI Fight for Affordable Housing's official stance on the PEI uh, Housing Action Plan? Um, I think because of the structure of five affordable housing, I can't say what the official stance is. Um, I don't know if one's been built out of consensus that I know of yet, um, which is the way that five affordable housing makes its decisions. Um, so I don't think there's an official stance, but the general idea would probably be it's like the action plan doesn't go far enough. Um, and going back to what I was saying before, like if it's so long as it's going to allow not interfere with the free market. I guess it's not, it's, it's not going to solve any housing issues. It's just going to make it look as if they're doing something, um, put money into the developers and landlords' pockets, um, and help a few people who happen to not fall through the cracks. And catch a few people who might otherwise have fallen through cracks, which, like, definitely people shouldn't be falling through the cracks, but a patchwork solution isn't a solution it's just it's going to fall apart at some point um similar to the rental voucher thing which i think gets counted as affordable units or at least they tried something like that um that's going to fall apart at the moment they can't afford to do it anymore because like just, there's no permanent solutions it's just create housing that's going to go back to the market at some point at the end of whatever contract the government subsidy or government interference has created um and then they'll just be back to where they were before, but they just won't be responsible for it because they probably won't be in office at that point. And great points around um, the clarification on what that target of 1,200 units is. It's not, you know, unique builds. It's it's kind of the culmination of a number of different approaches, which does, in fact, uh, include the rental vouchers. Um, now, annually, the government of Prince Edward Island produces a housing report, and it looks at, okay, this is our target goal. How are we getting along with that so far? Um, and, and where are we at today? So in August 2021, there were 302 affordable units that were complete, 144 that were in design slash under construction. How do you feel these new units have impacted the supply and demand for affordable housing, especially for, as we mentioned before, those low and middle income islanders? Uh, I think they've done next to nothing from what I've seen and what I've heard. Um, they either can't really be afforded or they're not going to be affordable for very long. Um, and it's just the problem with like trying to fix problems in terms of supply and demand rather than getting to the root of it, which is the reason housing is getting so unaffordable is because it's being used as a speculative market for people to just like throw money at because people see a lot of money is going into it. The property values go up. So people think, oh, I can make even more money off of it. So they keep throwing money into it. Um, and it's just this like positive feedback loop that's like it's not going to stop until it becomes very clear that you're not going to be making money off of property. Um, so like they can throw a lot of money at development, but it's not until like they cool the market that the market's ever going, that those new builds are going to become affordable because like going back to mentioning that like this market's built off of 
essentially vibes like and good feelings about how much money is going to be made um like the amount of units being made is kind of irrelevant to that it's more about are those units going to make a profit and at a certain point it's going to have to be like no they're not going to be profitable so the money goes out and the rents go down because they have to because otherwise like it's either zero dollars or some dollars most certainly and and just kind of to wrap up this section here and to go back to one of your earlier comments around um, the current action plan not being sufficient, we've seen examples in the PEI legislature where uh, different strategic plans such as this have been amended. One example of this was Hannah Bell's amendments to the PEI Poverty Reduction Action Plan. Um, what amendments would PEI fight for affordable housing or in your own expertise uh, envision to make housing action plan more effective moving forward? Yeah, I don't have any like deep thoughts about the housing action plan because I don't think that's where the like action on housing is going to come from. It's going to be much more connected to the everyday struggles of people on PEI. Like it's going to be people organizing to demand a better housing action plan. Like that's where you're going to get to see the amendments that are good. Um, I don't think any advocacy group is going to have the right answers because Fiber for housing is just too small and we don't talk to enough people. Um, I don't have the answers. Anybody saying that they have the answers um, themselves, I think, is either lying or completely misunderstands how proper understanding is built, which is by being in the actual experience itself. So it's only going to be a decent action plan if it's shaped by an organized and like a big organized uh, base of tenants who want better, like, or yeah, either tenants or people trying to buy housing. Um, people trying to buy housing will have better ideas about how to make it easier to buy housing um, for personal use, not for like private property. Mm-hmm. Um, and then tenants are going to be the ones that understand how to have an action plan that works for tenants. Um, there's really nobody else that's going to do it. Um, it's going to take organizing to be able to do it. And I think that's the only way, that'd be the only suggestion I have for the housing, housing action plan is that to, you have to organize tenants to be able to have, to allow them to make the decisions themselves. Yeah. And I think, you know, you have a really interesting approach to this. And I think, you know, even when we look at good policy, that's generally the right approach, which is make sure that the people who are most affected by the policy are around the table when that policy is being written. Um, And especially those who are most vulnerable who in this situation uh, would be folks trying to buy a home or folks who are tenants as of now. Um, This wraps up kind of the formal part of our interview with you today, Connor. Um, And now we're moving on to our very, very important segment uh, that we typically call uh, the beer panel. Now it's called the beer panel, but it's really taken on a life of its own over the last year or so. Uh, We've had folks recommend recipes, uh, their favorite restaurant, really anything. So as our special guest today, what would you like to recommend to our listeners? I don't know. I like, honestly, I work too much and I don't get out very often. (laughs) Um, I don't like just like a thing to eat or just general. Anything. Oh, What's uh, your go-to order at Craft Beer Corner? 
Oh, uh, the blueberry cream soda. But as a general recommendation, I would highly recommend talking to your neighbor and seeing what they're like and seeing if they have problems because they might end up having the same problems as you. Um, but as for like a drink or something, the blueberry cream soda, like craft beer corner is pretty good. Awesome. Blueberry cream soda, craft beer corner. And correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a non-alcoholic beverage, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't drink a ton because I really don't like feeling hungover. But um, the blueberry cream soda is pretty tasty. That's awesome. And Emma, what's your recommendation today? Well, I'm going to be recommending something I just tried yesterday. It is the um, lemon and ginger gin from Beefeater, and I paired it with a um, pomegranate sparkling soda from uh, Blue Menu uh, at, I think, Superstore. So uh, kind of a citrusy take on gin, which is typically the way to go. Add some ice. It was pretty tasty. Um, it had it had a good, you know, little kick to it, but wasn't like you know, it didn't taste like syrup or too sugary. So that would be my recommendation for today. I'm not as wise as Connor with the non-alcoholic option, but <laughs> if people do want to go down that road, I definitely recommend what I tried yesterday. So the uh, lemon and ginger gin from Bee Feeder and pink pomegranate sparkling soda from Blue Menu. That's awesome. And that sounds really good. We like GNTs on the show, so definitely we'll try that. Uh, today, I was going to go back to an old favorite, which I've talked about many times before, the Ruby Social from Upstreet. It's my go-to order when I don't want to think about what to order. Uh, but I also want to talk about the McDonald's hash brown. So the reason why um, I'd like to talk about the hash brown today is I didn't want to make breakfast. So I ordered breakfast and it was delivered at my door. But when I went out, I saw the bottom of the bag was torn out. I don't know if it was a skunk, a rat, a seagull, or a crow, but uh, the only thing that was missing from the bag was my hash brown. All I had was an empty paper bag. So since I wasn't able to have my hash brown today, uh, I hope someone has it and thinks of me while they're eating it. <laughs> wow, that's... <laughs> if you're out there, listener, and this was you, show yourself because that's a damn crime. From your doorstep! Shame, shame. It was just really funny when I opened the door. And anyway, it was just the hash brown missing. They, they left the breakfast sandwich there, which I'm very grateful for. So I still have my breakfast. Um, but I guess this brings us to the end of yet another dialogue episode. Thank you so much for joining us today, Connor, and sharing your many insights with us um, around housing. I don't think anyone's as much of an expert uh, as you on PEI. So we're really, really grateful to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank awesome. you so much, Connor. Yeah, no Perfect. Thank you so much, folks. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Connor. You already know what's coming next. That's right. It's Shane Pendergast, who is the artist who provides our opening and closing music. And it's his hit track, Gaspazy. You can find all of Shane's music on Apple Music, Spotify, or on his website, shamependergast.com. Stay warm, stay safe. This has been Dialogue.